You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Wednesday the 12th of October. This is Peter Lewis with the business and finance headlines on Money Talk on Radio 3. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index has dropped below 17,000 for the first time since October 2011, wiping out 11 years of stock market gains. A combination of global interest rate rises, the war in Ukraine, renewed lockdowns on the mainland, and the White House announcements that it will implement export controls that limit China's access to semiconductors have combined to increase bearish sentiment across Chinese markets. Former Chief Executive C.Y. Lung has stressed the need to address what he sees as misunderstandings about Hong Kong by foreign investors. Mr. Lung said overseas firms and key opinion leaders don't know enough about Hong Kong and have only superficial knowledge or they were misled because of smear campaigns by overseas media and politicians about what's really happening in Hong Kong. The IMF has warned of a worsening outlook for the global economy. It cut its forecast for global growth next year to 2.7% from its previous forecast of 2.9% made in July. China is forecast to grow 3.2% this year, down 0.1 percentage points from its previous forecast in July and 4.4% next year, a 0.2 percentage point drop on its pre on its previous estimate. New bank lending on the mainland nearly doubled in September from the previous month and far exceeded expectations. Chinese banks extended 2.47 trillion yuan. That's about 345 billion US dollars in new loans in September. Growth of outstanding total social financing, a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy, quickened to 10.6% in September from 10.5% in August. And the Bank of England has announced an expansion of its emergency bond-buying operation and warned the beginning of this week has seen a further significant repricing of UK government debt, particularly index-linked gilts. However, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey warned that the bank had no intention of extending its emergency intervention in the bond market after Friday. And the 71 billion US dollar program would come to a close. He abruptly said pension funds have three days left to get this done. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson at IMA Asia, Martin Henneke from St James's Place Wealth Management, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks finished a volatile session mostly lower ahead of the start of third quarter earnings season and key inflation data later this week. The S&P 500 declined for a fifth straight day, losing 0.7% to close at 3,589. Earlier in the day, the index was up 0.8%. The Dow gave up gains of over 400 points to end the session just 36 points higher at 29,239. The Nasdaq Composite Index fell 1.1% to 10,426. Stocks fell from the highs of the day and bond yields ticked up when the Bank of England said its emergency liquidity support scheme for UK government bonds would definitely end on Friday, raising the prospect of further sharp falls in gilts. 
the pan-European stock 600 index was off two-thirds of a percent. London's FTSE 100 fell 1.1%. And Hong Kong's Hang Seng index has dropped below 17,000 for the first time since October 2011. The Hang Seng ended the day 384 points, or 2.2% lower, at 16,832. Apart from two days in October 2011, the Hang Seng hasn't been below 17,000 since May 2009. The latest declines take the losses for 2022 so far in the Hang Seng to over 28%. The tech index tumbled 3.5% following a 4% decline on Monday. It's down over 42% since the start of the year. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.2% to 2,980 as state-run funds supported the market ahead of the 20th National Congress. Shares in Chinese top chip makers, which saw 8.6 billion US dollars in market value wiped out on Monday, slumped for a second day on Tuesday. China's bellwether SMIC dropped 4.6% in Hong Kong. Now a technology group slumped 10% the daily limit in Shenzhen for the second consecutive day. Shanghai Food and Microelectronics dropped 4% after plunging over 20% the previous day in Hong Kong. Angie Technology, that was down 13 and a third percent on the star market in Shanghai. And PNSC Process Systems was down 8.4% in Shanghai. The sell-off in chip stocks spread outside of Japan, uh, spread outside of China to Japan, Taiwan and South Korea. Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing plunged over 8%, the most since May, uh, the most on record. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 2% lower at $94.29 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,666 an ounce. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield fell six basis points to 3.95%. And in the currency markets this morning, the euro, uh, the dollars a touch stronger. The euro is at 97 cents. The bucks trading at 145.94 Japanese yen. Sterling fell 0.7% to a 10-day low, but black back below $1.10 and is at 109 and three quarters at the moment and eight Hong Kong dollars and 61 cents. Offshore, Chinese yuan has fallen to 7.17.5 versus the dollar. Bitcoin this morning is at $19,000. And Asia-Pacific stock markets are slipping once again. The SX200 in Australia down 0.1%. Just shortly after the open in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off a third of percent. The Cosby is down a quarter of a percent. And looks like further falls for the Hang Seng. Looks like it's going to lose another 110 points at the open, putting it at about 16,700 when trading gets going this morning. The time's 8.10. A lot to get through this morning. Not a lot of good news, unfortunately, but let's see what our guests think about it. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Asia, sitting here with me in Broadcasting House this morning. Morning, Mark. Good morning. Good evening, Barry. And also over in Queensway, Queensway Studio, we have Martin Henniker, who's Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Morning, Martin. Good morning. Always a pleasure. And over in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Martin, let me start with you and, and talk about Hong Kong 
um, stocks. As you heard there earlier on in the segment, we're back below 17,000 now for the first time since October 2011. I did say it wipes out 11 years of stock market gains. I should clarify really that that maybe is a little bit superficial because a lot depends upon when you started and ended investing, whether or not your portfolios, the Hang Seng Index, dividends and so on. But nevertheless, Martin, this performance makes grim reading, doesn't it? What's gone wrong? What's behind it? Well, of course, from our point of view, we are always more forward-looking than, than backward-looking and what it means for you know in, in investors and the public at large uh, from here on. And the first thing I would just like to note there on this kind of headlines is that when you look at valuation of equities, and I've been in this industry for 21 years now and, and always keep an eye on valuations everywhere. So now we are really at a historic crisis type of valuations and I'd suggest that some of the greatest opportunities can actually be found in if investors have good nerves looking for the medium to long term um, and have free um, uh, cash to invest. So there's this um, valuation issue. There's the issue of China's economy of course and the global economy that will play into it. Uh, but uh, one important thing to note is that there's actually it's actually been shown in research that there's an inverse correlation between economic growth um, and stock market development and that's because the stock markets often are anticipatory in nature and a lot of those things might be reflected. Uh, one last thing briefly to mention, uh, of course we are living in a globally interconnected world and it all depends nowadays on what the Fed is doing, European central banks, etc, etc. Um, but while we see conflicting news like every day, I think the end game of policymakers or the major central bank in the world is basically that sovereign debt is too high to continue unlimited um, this rate uh, increases less for them to risk a debt crisis and that I think ultimately is going to be one factor to bring back markets up or anything inflation proof for that matter. You, you say that the Hong Kong market is at crisis level valuations obviously equity markets around the world are going down but is Hong Kong in particular overreacting? Has Have people uh, just completely misvalued uh, Hong Kong stocks? Or is it justified to be at these sort of crisis level valuations? Well, the Hong Kong and China market had already been dropping before the recent crisis news. And that was driven uh, in part over the last two years by these uh, regulatory concerns on, on, on China um, and, and other news, the property crisis, etc., etc. And then recently those events have reinforced that. And of course, there has been bearish sentiment on Hong Kong generally with the lockup and economic situation here. But lots of stocks listed on the Hong Kong market actually have the vast majority of the revenues from China. Some are even Chinese companies like listed here, like the H shares. And when you look at the, an interesting indicator, there's this thing called um, the AH Premium Index. It compares um, companies, mainland companies that have the dual listing in Hong Kong and mainland China. And actually in Hong Kong that's trading at a 33% discount to the mainland counterparts. So that's yet an additional bonus. So I think really globally some of the most overlooked places you can actually uh, find here now. But that's not to say that there aren't great opportunities globally and one should always um, diversify. But certainly it's one of those economies where you can find good opportunities now.
Um, Mark, I I started getting involved in financial markets back in 1982, so I've seen 40 years of this now. But the one thing I've learned over the years is that fund managers make money. uh, The number one way in which they make money is by managing their risk. It's not about finding opportunities or missing opportunities. It's about risk. It seems to me that people are pricing in a very high risk premium right now um, for investing in um, uh, for investing in Hong Kong, what, what do you think that is? Well, I, I think the, there's worries because of signals. As as people come more, become more confident, uh, then then there are other other changes and announcements that make them less confident. Mm. And so I think it's the uncertainty that which we all feel in in all different areas that are really really uh, chiming in now. One of our one of our members, for example, and talking about Hong Kong in general, not just. It, this is FDI investing saying, I'm very hopeful that Hong, with Hong Kong opening, those who stayed will benefit and will get more people back. But now we have other signals that are going to discourage not so much the people that are already here, but their, their, uh, their superiors elsewhere in the world. Barry, if you look at this from from overseas, a, lo- a lot of people are pointing their fingers at the Fed here for um, for doing this for to, to Hong Kong's market, where obviously we are pegged uh, to the to the U.S. dollar, and therefore, in effect, uh, have to follow U.S. monetary uh, policy. How big a, an impact is the Fed on all of this? Oh, the the Fed is huge worldwide, and uh, with all the finance people gathered in Washington, several thousand they're all complaining about the Fed, or at least the power of the Fed. And secondarily, uh, there's great worry about what's happening in England and how that might spread. But as to the Fed being responsible for a stock market decline in Hong Kong, that's a stretch for most people here. I know it's very real in Hong Kong, but look, this is a global bear market. I'm sure Martin would agree. We've lost $10 trillion, at least, in global financial markets just uh, in 2022. So this is, this is a huge issue. This is horrific. Martin, what, what do you say to concerned investors who are seeing uh, their investment statements or looking at their MPF performance um, with, with some alarm now? What, what would you advise them to do? Well, one thing I have always been saying uh, in the past, and I will just you know start off by saying it again. You know, the first thing I always caution investors to be careful with leverage, any form of leverage, whether that's mm-hmm. leveraging an investment portfolio or any other type of a- assets. People always say, "Well, that's a boring thing to say." And why you always repeat this? But you can see now, you know, when things get serious, the importance of this, so that you aren't at risk at getting stopped out of position when they might be least uh, favorable. But having said that. You know, at this point in time, you also need to be very, very conscious of the risk of not investing and holding cash. So for anyone panicking about the market now going into cash, there's a risk of getting whipsawed for once, potentially having to buy in higher later or just staying in cash and then getting uh, with the money's getting eaten up by um, negative real interest rates. I do still think that inflation risk is uh, very, very uh, prevalent. And typically when we see investor pessimism at its most bearish, which is, uh, you know, really the case right now. You can compare it with 2008, 2011 Eurozone crisis, and then the initial COVID crisis. Very, very often it coincides with high 
a rebound potential. Of course, things might still be choppy, but again, it's it's good not to be swayed by the daily news. And I think central bankers ultimately, as mentioned earlier, won't be able to be quite as tough as they talk now. You see it clearly in Japan. They're not even really trying because clearly the sovereign debt is so high they can't increase rates. Bank of England and Eurozone still try to talk tough from time to time, but when it gets tough, they also have to act and try to find measures to support the market. Now, only the Fed is really keeping that tough face for now. But I tell you what, just now the, the August budget deficit numbers in the U.S. came out. It's $220 billion. It's up 29% year on year. You have projections that within the next 30 years, 40% of U.S. revenues will have to go just to interest rate payments. And that was even before the latest increases, that projection. So even the U.S. is sort of stuck in, in this regard. Um, Mark, let me um, quote something that former Chief Executive C.Y. Long said yesterday. He stressed the need to address what he sees as misunderstandings about Hong Kong by foreign investors. Mr. Lung said overseas firms and key opinion leaders don't know enough about Hong Kong, have only superficial knowledge, or they were misled because of smear campaigns by overseas media and politicians about what's really happening in Hong Kong. He said to tap into the country's development momentum, Hong Kong needs to address a number of issues, namely people not knowing enough about the country's development, mainland firms not knowing about the SAR's advantages, and overseas businesses knowing too little about Hong Kong's actual situation. So he seems to be saying the markets have got it all wrong. Uh, fund managers, oh, even mainland ones, don't understand the markets. Uh, but maybe the politicians do. What, what do you say to that? Well, naturally, there's some misunderstanding and, and, and lack of information understanding in some of these areas. But it seems to me what's really driving this is, is the circumstances. Zero COVID policy, uh, yeah. obviously, inflation, uh, supply chains, real uncertainty about what's happening going forward. And the longer this lasts and the longer that signals are so mixed, uh, people are going to react in this way. And this includes, obviously, you just reported what the Hong Kong, how the Hong Kong market's reacted. These are people that are here, and they're looking at all these factors and not looking at them very favorably. I agree with Martin that this is a potential for moving forward. Maybe we can change course like, like NASA did with the asteroid, but I don't know how successful we'll be. And Barry, one of, one, of the, one of the reasons that's being cited for the weakness here is these latest new export curbs uh, that the U.S. has announced, barring uh, U.S. firms from selling certain chips for, uh, to Chinese companies for supercomputing and artificial intelligence, also uh, stopping foreign firms that use U.S. technology in their equipments. It seems that this is, I mean, obviously the U.S. has been enacting legislation to try and curb exports in this sector for a while, but these seem to be sweeping new regulations now. What uh, is the U.S. trying to achieve here? Absolutely. Look, isn't it ironic if you go back two and a half or even five years when we had this whole problem with Huawei for the Americans? And, you know, Huawei, I think it could be said, at least from this perspective, on this side of the Pacific, uh, crippled by the American action. And this is far-reaching. Who would have believed that a Biden administration would be tougher than the Trump administration on this strategic competition with China? As you say, Peter, I mean, these are very far-reaching developments which have sent semiconductor stocks in Asia and America way down Intel is down 8% in five days. 
Mm. The, the chip losses globally are $725 billion. The Americans are clearly saying, we're not going to help the Chinese at all in terms of supercomputing and other things. And I, I, I don't know enough about supercomputing or about semiconductors to go much further than that. But I think I fully agree with what you said. This is very serious stuff. Yeah, I, I agree completely with Barry. This is directional. And it, as Barry says, it reflects a consensus apparently in the in the U.S. about a hardening hardening policy toward China. And now it's sort of looking at portfolio investments as well as FDI, which is worrying. It depends on what restrictions are. And this is for outgoing investments by U.S. investors and firms in China and, and other areas that are questionable. We'll see how this sorts out. But the situation looks going forward, at least for the next few months and maybe much longer than that. Is not very positive. So this doesn't make investors and, and of course, their bosses very comfortable at all. Martin, from an investment perspective, this has hit uh, global chip stocks very hard, not just here in Hong Kong and China, but in the in the US, in Japan, uh, Taiwan um, as well. It comes at a bad time, doesn't it, for the chip sector, because it was already experiencing uh, quite a sharp uh, drop off in, uh, in demand. What does this mean for the chip sector going forward? Yes, sure. It does come at a bad time with everything else that's going on in in the world, and I would always hope that you know things things might be toned down uh, a little bit. I think it would be in the best interest um, of of all countries really not to go further down into this development. But from an investor's point of view, really, it's it's yet another example of the importance of diversification, not to be overly focused in any one sector or market, however popular new set lines at one point might be. You know, often when, when things are most popular, valuations are at its highest, etc., etc. Uh, but for everything that's negative, you, you often can find positives. One is, again, now valuations, of course. Then in Asia, you have the RCEP, the world's largest region, uh, largest free trade area, really just get underway this year, bringing quite a lot of opportunities for, for Japan, uh, China, trade, uh, and everybody else who's in there, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, just just keep that in mind, uh, and never to be too focused on any one thing, um, uh, diversify, uh, have a medium to long-term time frame, and, and just be mindful that whenever a crisis might hit, you have the resources and not be too leveraged to be able to, to sit it out. Now, the International Monetary Fund has warned of a worsening outlook for the global economy for this year. The IMF sees world growth of 3.2%, unchanged from July, but down by more than a quarter from the 4.4% projected in January. It cut its forecast for global growth next year to 2.7% from its previous forecast of 2.9% made in July. It said there's a 25% probability growth will slow to less than 2%, making it one of the slowest growth rates in the past 50 years. And the IMF gave us reasons for this, rising interest rates globally, China's zero COVID policy and its slumping housing market and surging energy and food prices as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Barry, one thing that's really stood out in this, in these revised forecasts, 93% of countries have now received downgrades to their growth outlook. It seems to show to me just how widespread now um, and pervasive the slowdown is. No country seems to be escaping. No, I don't think there's any country that has escaped. You're absolutely right. Well, maybe India. 
Well, yes, uh, that, that's the, the one. Economy. That was the one where yeah, they, they predicted good growth there. I'm trying to find yeah, the number. Yeah, and, and it was very interesting to hear the World Economic Outlook at the fund today. And by the way, the, my, my takeaway, the, the, the phrase that I take away was uh, Mr. Gorinchas, the chief economist, saying, the worst is yet to come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at a 2023 where things really go downhill, go downhill in Europe particularly, also in the States, and then they, they do detect at least a, a mild rebound in, in China. But boy, this is gloomy stuff. And as you say, Peter, this is global. And I've just found that India number. India uh, will expand the most among the world's biggest economies, growing 6.1%. And that reflects investment, too. As I, I think I've mentioned in previous shows, a lot, of, a lot of our members are looking for China plus one or two, and India's biggest beneficiary at the moment, together with parts of Southeast Asia. But also, I, I hope the IMF is, is right about China. I think they're maybe a little high in in terms of, of their growth prospects. And we think it's going to be about 2.2% this well, what, what year. Saying, wrong. What they're saying for China is they're forecasting growth of 3.2% yeah. this year um, and 4.4% next year. And we're about a point down for this year. And then for next year, somewhere around 3%. So a mild recovery, as Barry said, but, but perhaps not as strong, but still might look pretty good compared to much of the rest of the world, except yes, India. Yes, that's right, Mark. Yeah. Absolutely. And by the way, just, just to show you how bad things are in, in, in Europe, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but uh, the, Christian Koff, uh, chief economist at Union Bank in Frankfurt, was giving some figures. He said, look, the average German family pays about 150 euros, typically, for gas bills to heat and cook with in the winter. And that will be 450 to 550 this year. He said, we're all poorer and we all have to consume less. That's pretty grim. And um, the Eurozone forecast, just to complete the picture, the IMF is forecasting growth of just uh, half a percent next year. That was the biggest cut it made to its outlook, and it's predicting Germany and Italy's economy will contract. Um, does it have to be like this? Uh, are central banks over-tightening and, and um, maybe needlessly sending the global economy into recession? What, what do you think, Martin? Well, maybe one more thing I say on IMF predictions. Actually, the IMF predicted in October 2021 uh, that this year the eurozone inflation rate was going to be 1.7 percent. So now, you know, I mean, that, that was at a time when producer prices were already well above 20 percent. Now we are CPI 10 percent, producer prices 43.3. So, yes, mm. definitely I agree with the other gentleman that things, you know, might get... Uh, a little interesting and tough, but um, but again, I suggest the one big thing that people are missing is that central banks are really boxed in and can't really address it. They still try to talk tough um, to avoid sort of people selling off the currency and, and that would stoke uh, further inflationary risk. But as an investor, you just have to be conscious if one is not doing anything, when you look at the Eurozone, 0.75% is the current interest rate, 10% is the CPI. And if you believe that PPI is foreshadowing something at 43%, so you should sort of be wary. I think sometimes they talk a lot and try to be tough and, and maybe even perhaps confuse people a bit about what they're really are going to do and can do. Um, but, but I think ultimately uh, all these games, even, even the bailout of Germany just saying, oh, we, we put 200 billion to address inflation and energy, what it's going to do is just broadening the whole inflationary picture and you can't really escape from it uh, in the medium term. 
And it's not just the, uh, the IMF. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warned Monday the US recession is likely in six to nine months. And he warned the downturn threatened to spark panic in credit markets and wipe an additional 20% from the value of US stocks. And ARK's Kathy Wood, the well-known technology investor, she's written an open letter to the Fed saying it was risking an economic bust. I think she sees the Fed as being the manager of the stock markets. Barry's... Oh, well, it- that's right. Isn't that true, Peter? Because here's Kathy Wood investing in all these high-tech and high-flying stocks. I mean, obviously, she must be getting lots of calls from her clients. Look, the answer to your question, Peter, about the Fed and whether it could, in fact, you know, pause... That's really the question on everybody's mind. But the Fed is acting so unanimously in terms of saying we will stick with it until we win on inflation. So, you know, there's no sign that the Fed is going to to modify its stance. I think there is some concern about whether the the problem in the in the bond market in Britain which surfaced and, and, and is still with us, with the Bank of England intervening again, there's a fear that if that spreads, I think the Fed could maybe pause. Mm. But otherwise, I think the Fed is full steam ahead. All right, well, th- thank whatever you. Whatever that means, who... Sorry. Yep, sorry, Barry, we've, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for, for that. That's our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. You also heard Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Martin Henniker, head of Asia Investments Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Quick look at Asian stock markets. The ASX 200 in Australia is flat at the moment. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down about a quarter of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is off a quarter of a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall another 100 points or so at the open. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work after the news. Weather forecast, sunny, cooler in the morning, very dry during the day. Maximum temperature about 29 degrees. Cloudier tomorrow and fine in the next couple of days. Uh, there is a red fire danger warning in force, 23 degrees, 44% relative humidity. 8.32, Barry O'Rourke has the half-hour news. The Education Bureau has been urged to revise its guidelines on school flag-raising ceremonies to give more details on penalties. Mervyn Chung, the chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organisation, was commenting after 14 students were suspended for three days for failing to turn up to a flag ceremony. Mr Chern called the suspension drastic, saying such action should be a last resort. He told RTHK that a full investigation was needed on the reasons for the students' behaviour. I think the EDB should consider revising the circular that they issued last year and be more specific with the penalties for non-compliance. Now, for instance, there might be variations in the degree of severity between negligence and deliberate defiance on the part of the students. So the level of penalties should also differ. Then suspension from classes should be the last resort. NASA says its mission to change the course of an asteroid was a success. Two weeks ago, a fridge-sized spacecraft known as a DART impactor was deliberately smashed into an asteroid millions of kilometres from the Earth. The US Space Agency says the orbit of the rock, called Dimorphos, around another asteroid was shortened as a result. Here's NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Now this is a watershed moment for planetary defence and a watershed moment for humanity. And that's why it was fitting that DART 
was an international endeavor. Science benefits humanity. This is a unifying mission. G7 leaders say irresponsible nuclear rhetoric risks global peace and security and have reaffirmed that any use of chemical, biological or nuclear weapons by Russia would be met with severe consequences. The leaders made their statement after an emergency virtual meeting in response to missile and drone strikes across Ukraine this week. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was also at the meeting. I thank everyone who has already helped us secure our air defense system, which allows us to neutralize some of the Russian missiles and drones. But according to our intelligence, Russia has ordered 2,400 Shahid drones from Iran. And that's why it's important that we have sufficient missiles for the air defense and anti-missile systems. And back locally, a 68-year-old man has died after